Psalm 97 begins with the declaration that the Lord reigns. And the rest of the psalm tells you why that matters. And I think it's important uh, to understand that concept, that there's a reason why that should matter to God's people. In fact, in this section in the psalms, uh, you'll notice that these psalms begin with either the Lord reigns or let's sing to the Lord then because the Lord reigns. Psalm 93 begins, the Lord reigns. Psalm 95, come, let us sing to the Lord. Psalm 96, oh, let us sing to the Lord. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord, Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Uh, Here is this picture of these psalms being joined together with this message. The Lord reigns, and that's supposed to mean something to the inhabitants of the earth. For us, I think we sometimes have a tendency to speak about the reign of God and to speak about his sovereignty and his power in in almost maybe even perhaps a a flippant way without grasping the gravity of it. Uh, Perhaps one of the ways that I've observed that the most is when you talk to somebody about the book of Revelation, you'll sometimes get the response, well, the details don't matter. All that matters is God wins, right? He reigns. And so that, you know, don't worry about everything kind of in between. To which, of course, I'd argue that's not really the whole of the book at all. God could have condensed that down quite a bit if that's all he meant by that. But even with that idea of God reigns, God wins, it's not just merely a message of, oh, hey, good to know God reigns. Well, what does that mean? What is that supposed to do? And and Psalm 97 then is going to show us that if God wins and if God reigns, then here's what that is supposed to mean for us and what that looks like on the earth and what that looks like in in your life and in mine. So if you have your Bibles there in Psalm 97, it's page 499 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along in that, Uh, and, and be ready to do some turning. We're going to look at a few other passages as we tie in this psalm. But let's read what the psalmist has for us in Psalm 97. He writes, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hands of the wicked. Light is is, uh, sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. 
All right, let's talk about now what we see the psalmist encouraging because the Lord reigns. I think it is interesting that he initiates an obvious response. He says, the Lord reigns, and that is supposed to mean something. That all the earth now is supposed to rejoice because of that. Even to the coastlands, he says. So even to the islands, even to the edges. So all the earth, nobody is left out of this call that the Lord reigns and therefore every single person, all creation, that even to the ends of the earth, every single one is supposed to now praise him and rejoice over him and worship him because of the reign that he has. And notice then what you see with, with this picture is, as verse one says, let the earth rejoice, let the coastlands be glad. You see it again in verse eight. Zion hears and is glad and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. And this is something that is interesting because one, you are observing that the psalmist says the people of God should have a characteristic of joy. He says they should be rejoicing. They should be glad. And think about how often the scriptures, like in the New Testament, give succinct commands like rejoice always. That's all Paul had to say right there. Rejoice always. And I think it's interesting that you think about the circumstances by which Paul would say that because we know the Apostle Paul was not going through easy times or times of comfort and ease and that things were simple for him. We see him being arrested and put in prison and being stoned and being persecuted and going through all kinds of distress and difficulties. And yet here is the Apostle Paul who is able to say, Rejoice always. Rejoice in any of these circumstances. He would even write to the Corinthians in the second letter and say, even though we are being treated sorrowfully, we rejoice always. Now you think we're being sorrowful and we think we're in distress, but we rejoice. We enjoy these things that God has given to us, even though he was suffering. And I think that's often one of the biggest questions that we read about these kinds of things, about rejoicing, let the earth be glad, let the inhabitants rejoice in the Lord. How is that supposed to happen? And notice even with the psalmist that he's not ignoring the reality of the difficulties of those who follow the Lord. You see that there in verse 10. Oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Well, where are the saints right now? But in the hand of the wicked. So it's not putting your blinders on and being Pollyanna and saying, well, you know, everything is wonderful and great and just put a smile on and, you know, it's sunshine and rainbows and puppy dogs and every day is a wonderful day. Just put a smile on your face and you'll be fine. He describes here in verse 10, they're in the hand of the wicked. And yet in the middle of saying that they are in the hand of the wicked, he's saying rejoice and be glad. How? And that's the message of this psalm. The knowledge that the Lord reigns is how that's supposed to happen. Understanding that God reigns is the piece of knowledge that is necessary to be able to rejoice always. To be able to be, as verse 1 describes, the earth and the coastlands being glad 
even through distress and difficulty and problems and suffering. And notice the picture that's given to us about how that happens with this reign of God. It is really an amazing image as verses two through five really describe the arrival of the Lord, the appearing of the Lord. And it is majestic that we read here. And notice there's two aspects of the majesty of the rule of God and the reign of God. The first picture I want to zero in on is in the middle of verse two. Notice what his uh, platform is for his throne. The foundations of his throne are righteousness and justice. What a great picture of the reign of God. Here's the basis of all that God does in his reign over all of the earth. His activities center around these two ideals, righteousness and justice. I think we can get a good sense of that as we're entering into this uh, terrible time of year where we start all the politics again and we have to listen to candidates and we have to hear the platforms and hear, here's what I stand for and if I am elected, here's what I'm going to do. Well, put that together with what God is saying. Here's my throne and the basis of my throne, the thing that my throne stands on, its very foundation is righteousness and justice. This is the means by which I act. I will act in righteousness and I will act in justice. And then that gives a a picture of hope then to the people of God. This is why there can be joy There can be rejoicing, there can be gladness, is the knowledge that God will act with justice and righteousness. We'll come back to that as he's going to hit that a few times in this psalm. But see what he sets up as the basis of his rule. And then notice what he does a little bit more with this from verse 2 to verse 5. is He is really pictured here as a divine warrior. The, The imagery here is absolutely amazing. Visualize... What the psalmist is is saying here, and if you're like me, I told you, I'm left-brained accountant, not English lit, don't visualize, very tough, so so work with me, if you're right-brained, this is easy, if you're left-brained like me, work with the imagery and try to let it saturate the picture of the appearing of God. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Very judgment kind of imagery used all kinds of places when the Lord arrives in the Old Testament, like Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 5, 2 Samuel 22, 1 Kings 8, Job 22. We see this imagery when the Lord arrives, it is clouds and darkness. Verse 3, fire goes out before him and burns up all of his adversaries. There's an image. Here's the arrival of God in His thickness and black and darkness and clouds and fire then comes out and is wiping out those who are the adversaries. Verse 4, His lightnings light up the world and the earth sees and trembles. Maybe you might think of this verse next time we get our South Florida storm and the rattle that happens and the lightning flashes and the windows shake. And here is a picture of here's the arrival of God as the lightning flashes and the earth trembles as God now is moving to act. And then verse 5, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord. 
of all the earth. What an image. To, to hear his clouds and darkness and fire comes out from him and lightning is flying and the booming of the thunder and the mountains are just melting down before him. And the idea is everything that is stable is unable to stand before the coming of God. Nothing can stand before God when He comes. When He arrives with judgments in hand that are righteous and just, not even the mountains are able to stand. They just melt before Him. And the enemies do not stand before Him, for fire shoots out from Him and burns up the adversaries. No one can stand before God. And so you get this image of the divine warrior coming in judgment who defeats the adversaries. And the idea of these early verses then is if the Lord reigns, He's not just reigning and doing nothing. No, He reigns and He is active. The fire is going out. The lightning is shooting. The thunder is happening. You have imagery of God in action because God reigns. And so it is a picture then of that God is not asleep or on vacation, but that He reigns, He is active, and He is acting in all that He does in righteousness and justice, which means judgments are flowing out from God. Now that leads to this next section as he establishes the reign of God. And this is to cause people to rejoice. And I want us to even ponder that for a moment. I don't know that we often talk about the righteous judgments of God. Of God coming in clouds and thick clouds and darkness with fire coming out before him and consuming his adversaries, with lightning flying and the thunder that it shakes the earth, and that all the peoples are trembling before him and the mountains are melting. And it says here, and people are supposed to go, rejoice, yes! That's not the picture you would think of. You say, he's coming with clouds and fire and melting mountains. It's like, run, right? Run, fear, let's look out. But that's not the picture of the psalm. The psalm began, the Lord reigns, and everybody's supposed to be glad. Rejoice. You get to verse 8. Zion hears this, that the Lord reigns, and these judgments are flowing from God. And Zion is glad. The daughters of Jerusalem rejoice. Notice it. Because of your judgments. I don't know that we've always had that mentality about the righteous, just judgments of God as his people going, yes, I take joy in that. How does it to go, oh no, right? The judgments of God, oh no. But that's not what the psalmist says. There is a hope that is given to his people while there is a fear that is intended for the enemies. And that's what you see in this reaction that is described from verses 7 through 12. Verse 7, he starts with those who are the enemies. In verse 7, all worshipers of images 
are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Here's the the crux. You need to worship God. You don't want to worship idols. You're going to be put to shame when the Lord comes and His arrival. And He arrives in clouds and darkness and with fire and with all that melts the mountains. The last thing you want to be doing is worshiping worthless idols. Instead, you need to be worshiping the Lord. It is an interesting irony to me as I thought about this this declaration here that I think every Christian recognizes that idols are nothing. They they cannot save. They have no power in and of themselves. They do not deliver. They are of no help. They are just idols. They are things. They are possessions. It's stuff. It's, It's just there. And yet, while we recognize with our mind and with our wisdom and our spiritual sense that these things are nothing, that idols are worthless and they are not to be treasured and they are not to be worshipped and they are not to be trusted, yet what do we do but trust in worthless idols? We put our hope in our jobs or our wealth or our families, or our things, possessions. We put our hope in these kinds of things. We put our hope in our bodies or in our health. We put our hope in all of these other things. And here is God coming and saying, don't do that. Trust in God if you rely upon these worthless things. As he says in verse 7, you're going to be put to shame. Worship Him. Worship the Lord, all you gods. If you trust in the idols, you're going to be treated like the adversaries of God. He's going to arrive and come and you're not going to be on His side. There will be reason for, for fear. When the Lord comes in judgment, there will be reason to be concerned when the Lord rises up and his throne is established on righteousness and justice. There will be reason to be scared because we have put our trust not in the Lord, but in the worthless idols. And so he gives that to us here in verse seven. The worshipers, they are the ones who should fear the worshipers of the idols, the ones who do not worship the true and living God. They are the ones who should be afraid because they do not trust in the Lord. But verse eight, those who trust in the Lord to hear of the judgments of God is to generate joy, not fear. The idea of God judging even in the final judgment, should not generate fear, but is to generate joy and gladness. And even in the judgments that God executes in the earth, as He does as He judges peoples and nations, is not to be feared, but is to generate joy. You can keep your hand here in Psalms, and you can either do one of two things. You can listen... If you're an audio person, just kind of like, listen, I'm going to take a few passages. But if you like to read like me, because you can't hear a thing, that's me. Revelation, go over to the book of Revelation. I'm going to read a couple of texts from the book of Revelation. And as you listen, I would like for you to hear this combination of the judgments of God is a picture of the reign of God which is generating praise and rejoicing out of either the people 
or spiritual beings. The book of Revelation is full of judgments. A whole book that is full of the judgments of God, particularly in regards to the Jewish nation Israel, in regards to the Roman Empire, and in regards to Satan himself. And notice in each of these instances, you see these three things together. God's judgments brings about a judgment against them that is going to then be fearful to the enemy, but it is showing the rule and reign of God and bringing joy to God's people. Revelation 12 and verse 7. Now war war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against, against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, so here's the casting down of Satan. Now watch what happens in verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice. O heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Notice the picture that's there. The Satan is cast down. He's being limited. Here is the victory of the Christ. And so here is this loud voice and it's a proclamation of joy. Now salvation has come. Now the kingdom has come. Now his reign is on display. His authority and his power for they have conquered them. So rejoice, O heavens because God has done this and then there is a woe to the earth because there's a time as short as he describes the persecution against the saints but then that's also going to lead to joy in this book back up to chapter 11 and notice the same thing as he describes the final fall of Jerusalem the physical nation we read in Revelation 11 verse 15 then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All right. So here's a picture. Final judgment has come against this nation. It's been decimated. The kingdom of the world has now been subjugated to the kingdom of our God. Here's a picture of the reign of Christ. So what's supposed to be the response? Well, listen to the heavenly response in verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came in the time of the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Notice that picture there. Here is judgment comes and the the spiritual being saying, we thank you, Lord, and we worship you because you have brought your judgments and you have executed your wrath. And verse 16, verse 18, and the prophets and the saints, they are being rewarded. And those who fear your name, both small and great, being rewarded. So it's a picture of joy for the people of God. 
Look at it in chapter 18 of Revelation. Chapter 18, and you begin in verse 21, you'll notice this is now the description of the fall of the Roman Empire. And notice the same pictures put together again. Revelation 18.21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpists and the musicians of the flute players and the trumpeteers will be heard in you no more. A craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and a bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all who have been slain on earth. So notice the picture that's given here. Here is the fall of this nation. He says, no more sound in you, no more joy, no more weddings, no more joy is happening there whatsoever. Your time has come because the blood of the prophets and the saints was found in you. You persecuted the people of God. Now I tell you, these numbers get in the way all the time, right? Very next line for chapter 19, verse one. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Remember, Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of her of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who you who fear him small and great and then i heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the lord our god the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints notice the same imagery here that the revelation uses again and again The idea is when God comes in judgment, it shows that the Lord reigns and it is to cause people to worship It is to cause people to trust in the Lord and praise the Lord. And so you get this great picture of God is exercising his rule. And that's what Psalm 97 is showing. The Lord reigns and look at all of this uh, metaphorical imagery. The mountains are melting because God is acting. Fire is going out before him because God is judging. We see lightnings and thunder for God is active in the world. He is judging and that is to cause us to rejoice in him. It is to cause us to trust him because his rule is active and he reigns over all the earth. And so God then gives us the picture that our hope is to be squarely upon him and that judgment is not to be feared. 
because we love the Lord and we hate evil, which is what we see there in verse 10. You who who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. You saw this idea earlier in the Psalms, like in Psalm 56, he says, so when I am afraid, what are you going to do? He says, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise in God. I trust I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? The idea that the Lord reigns then tells us that we have absolutely nothing to fear. The idea that the Lord reigns tells us that we are to hold fast to the Lord and to hate evil. The Lord reigning is the basis by which we continue to live righteous lives. That we don't look at the evildoers and the idolaters and say, well, I need to be like them. Look, they're doing well. They seem to be doing fine. We have a song. How is it that the righteous suffer and and these, they continue to prosper being wicked year after year? The Lord reigns and I am not tempted into that trap to think, well, there's nothing that's going to happen and God's not going to take care of it. The Lord reigns and he is going to judge. He is going to do something about these things. Probably the pinnacle of this comes when we, we studied in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 52, you have this great declaration of how beautiful are the feet of those who cross the mountains and give this declaration, your God reigns. And if you get a sense of where that is found in the prophecy of Isaiah, you know what comes after the declaration of your God reigns is the message of the suffering servant. That's the next paragraph. Your God reigns. Here's the proclamation of peace. Here's the proclamation of the good news is that God is reigning. And one of the biggest questions I think we have is, well, how do I know that God reigns? I can't see it. All that I see is evil. All that I see is wickedness. To use verse 10 of Psalm 97, I'm in the hands of the wicked and I need to be delivered. I'm in distress. I'm in trial. I'm in difficulty. So how can I know that God reigns? Isaiah gives an answer. But you see the cross. You see the suffering servant. Think about how the writer of Hebrews does the exact same thing. Where in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5, you'll read that the writer of Hebrews says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you should care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. This is a great quotation from the Psalms. Because here is this description about humans. When you read Psalm 8, he is describing that God created humans. And here is this description of that. And he made that so that they would have dominion over all things. You see that at the very beginning in Genesis. That humans were made to have dominion and rule over the earth. 
And here is this declaration is that you made him a little lower than angels for a time. You've crowned him with glory and honor and you put everything under his feet. But then you notice it says there in the middle of verse eight, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And I love that line. Because here you have just spent a paragraph talking about, you know, we have we have rule, we have dominion. And I look around and go, no, I don't. I don't have anything. I am in the hands of the wicked. I'm suffering. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because he of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He says, you don't see all the rule and the authority you have, and you don't see the concept of the kingdom of God, and you don't see what God is doing. But he says, there is something that you do see. In fact, he'd say, there is someone that you see. And that's what he argues here. But you see Jesus. And that's what you see in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. Here's the proclamation. Your God reigns. All right, look around. Does it look like God reigns? No, it doesn't look like God reigns. But here's how you know God reigns. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's how you know God reigns. Think about how this is exactly what the Apostle Paul argued in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of Jesus. Proving the resurrection. And notice the argument that he makes about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Here in this discussion of proving there must be a resurrection and tells them if there is no resurrection, your faith is in vain and what are you doing? And then draws this great point just to say, of course he's reigning. The implications of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that he is seated on the throne and he is reigning right now. And that's supposed to cause God's people to rejoice, to know that God reigns. That's the hope that we have. And think about how that played out in the New Testament. Because the idea that God reigns does not mean, okay, I'm having a bad day and I'm in the hands of the, of the wicked and God will do something right now, right there, and that shows that God reigns. No, that's not how it ever worked. But think about how often that played out with the evidence of God's reign throughout history. If we went to the book of Daniel, and I had all the time in the world to do Daniel chapter 2 with you, and talk about all of those nations, and you see the picture of the nations like Babylon, and Persia, and Greece, and Rome, and in that you see a picture of, here's what it looks like for God reigning. He destroys all of those nations. And you get to chapter 7, And here is a picture of this fourth terrifying beast against, again, this Roman Empire that's going to persecute and wear out the saints of the Most High. 
But what is pictured there is God reigning. It's not that there is no suffering or that there is no evil, but that God rules and He is going to do something about it. And the book of Daniel then shows it. You come to the book of Revelation, you see the same thing. The Jewish nation, Jerusalem, they're persecuting the saints. What does Revelation show? God judges. Boom. And what happens? God's people rejoice. You get to chapter 17, 18, and 19. The Roman Empire, they're persecuting the people of God. They're the ones who are persecuting the saints. What does God do? He allows persecution for hundreds of years. But God does reign. And He does something about it. And brings about the fall. You get to Revelation 20, the best of all. Who is our greatest adversary but Satan himself? Does God reign? Absolutely. As Revelation 20 goes on to show, that enemy that we have is going to be cast into the lake of fire. And he's going to be dealt with as well. The reign of God, the authority of God over the earth, over the nations, over the peoples, because we see evil does not mean that God does not reign. Think about how the New Testament and the Old Testament really put that forward. In Matthew chapter 28, we often quote the verse after this verse. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the line right in front of that is really important too. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Think about what that looks like. That's that's that 1 Corinthians 15 text we just talked about. He's ruling right now. He has authority right now. He's ruling over the nations. He's ruling over the peoples. When you have Daniel's prophecy and you see that Nebuchadnezzar that has this, this vision of this statue, before he can get into the details, he makes this observation and tells them, Daniel answered to Nebuchadnezzar and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. What is Daniel's argument before he begins to interpret the dream but to say, you know that God is the one who rules, don't you? You know the one, he's the one who's in charge. He's the one who's behind everything and you must rely upon him. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar loses sight of that a little later. He has to lose his mind for a while until he humbles himself to recognize that there is the true and living God who rules over all things. What this means for us. The idea that the Lord reigns. And verse 1 says, so let all the earth rejoice. I think that has a very big answer for our lives. Is that the idea that the Lord reigns means when you are discouraged and you are distressed, you are supposed to speak to your soul and remind yourself that God reigns. Now, God reigns when it comes to handling evildoers. The news probably couldn't be any more depressing anymore to watch these days. <laughs> you just all, I think every hours about well here's more evildoers doing evil things 
hurting people, destroying lives, killing people from things globally that are certainly frightening of people who claim to be followers of Christ being beheaded for that confession to people shooting other people. I mean, we're just looking at a world full of wickedness and evil. And so how are we supposed to rejoice? How are we supposed to be glad? How are we to rejoice always except in the knowledge that God reigns, that we will not then need to be discouraged for we know that God rules in righteousness and in justice and that this knowledge then helps us through not being troubled by all the injustice that we see and by all the inequity that we see and all the unrighteousness that we see, that we know that God is ruling and He has promised to vindicate He has promised that he will do something about that. And it's not just simply, well, I sure hope that happens one day out out there in the future. We just read texts in the book of Revelation where we saw God did that before final judgment. That he takes care of things even now. It's not even just the ultimate vindication that God has promised at the end times. But we saw vindication in the times of the, of the scriptures of an Assyrian nation, of a Babylonian nation, of a Persian nation, a Grecian nation, a Roman nation, a Jewish nation. Over and over again, you see, here is God reigning. And that's what leads them to transformed lives. That's what encourages us to live for him and live rightly. And to not have to be dismayed by wickedness. To keep us from being wicked and engaging in evil. You know, sometimes you see other people, they're full of sin. I want to do that too. But we've already learned. But God reigns and the text has told us here. Those who are worshiping the idols, they're going to be put to shame. I don't want to go down that road of sin. I don't want to turn off the path of God because with God, I can rejoice in the coming judgments rather than if I step away from God. When the judgments come, all that I have is a whole lot of fear because I know I haven't done what God's called me to do. I haven't been living the way he's called me to live. I haven't put my trust in him for deliverance, I put my hope and trust in myself and in these various idols. It becomes life-changing. It becomes life-transforming to be able to see what happens around us and to know this. God will take care of that. And every evil thing that you see happening around us, to know just simply this, you know, God will take care of that. He's going to take care of that one day. And never in the scriptures are we seeing it being immediate, but ultimately we see God again and again saying, I'll take care of that. Which then leads, I think, to what is so important about verse 12. Listen to those final words. After saying the Lord reigns, let this be our response that we live. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. That's how we survive turmoil, distress, difficulty, unrighteousness, evildoers, mistreatment, pain, suffering, persecution for the cause of Christ. The Lord reigns. He's not asleep. He is in charge. He is ruling. 
and he will take care of these things. And that was the hope of this psalmist. You pull your psalm books out, we'll sing invitation song, and we invite you then to come to Jesus, who is reigning now, who sits on the throne, and is bringing about his judgments. His judgments are being revealed, and though we do not see all that is happening in that spiritual realm, we are able to see one thing that shows us that God reigns. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. By believing in the resurrection, then we believe in the reign of God. The two must go together. If you believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, then goes right along with it, then there's the belief that God is alive and ruling and will take care of all that we see happening to us. And this allows us then to live righteous lives rather than lives trying to right wrongs and vindicate evil and do to others what they've done to us and harm them. And if they hurt us, we hurt them back unnecessary. God will vindicate and God will judge. Will you put your life in the hands of the true and living God? Will you follow him with all of your heart? Will you put your trust in his reign and his rule? Turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can put your trust in him. And have him as your father and rely upon him to hear those wonderful words on the day of judgment that you are a servant of his. Will you come and do that now while we see him and while we sing?